So there's this editorial in the AP published. It was, it was a few years ago, um, but I came across it again this week. And the title is How the American Dream Convinces People That Loneliness is Normal. It's actually a really good article. It misses some clear implications, I think, but, but it's honest and aware of a deep problem that all of us have experienced. The, the, the writer, Ted Anthony, he talks about this epidemic of loneliness that's been declared in the U.S. by the Surgeon General um, less than a year ago, I believe. The Surgeon General said that loneliness is as deadly as smoking. And millions of people in America are struggling in the shadows. Now there are lots of reasons for this epidemic. We've had quite a mess of the last few years, have we not? COVID and the isolation that came with it. Division and disunity in almost every arena of our lives. Decreased engagement in churches. This is actually in the article. The fraying idea of, of the extended family. There's a loneliness that we experience. More than ever, we're by ourselves. It's true, we all feel it. Can I hear some quotes from some of my favorite musicians today? But we can hear Paul McCartney calling out, look at all the lonely people. The, this editorial pushes a little bit further though than just the, the statement by, by the Surgeon General. It suggests that this epidemic of loneliness stretches back further than the last decade of events, actually to the very heart of the American ideal. He paints us the picture of John Wayne at the end of The Searchers, looking around at all the people that he knows who have other people, and then stoically riding off towards the horizon. The argument is that this rugged individualism, this Western ideal of a nation built on the back of individuals who suck it up and do what needs to be done and ride off into the sunset has created a cultural excuse for our loneliness. It's even made it one of our highest values. And now it's killing us at rates that exceed smoking. It's a compelling article. And I think it's one of the ideas that we really struggle with what Paul is putting before us today. And what we'll continue to look at next week. This idea of unity, of community. Because we feel deep down in our core, in our very American ideal, that true maturity, that real manhood, if you will, though it's not gender exclusive, is exemplified by being okay alone. Declaring unironically what Simon and Garfunkel poked fun at, that I am a rock 
I am an island, and I've built walls of fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. That's who we are. It's deep in our culture, either being celebrated or cried against, but honestly, we feel that it is better if we were just better alone. And that's true in the church as well as it is anywhere else. And it stunts our growth. It's killing us. In chapters 1 through 3 of this, this letter, Paul's been giving us this big lofty polemic against those oppressive powers of sin, right? The world, the devil, and the flesh. These powers that are oppressing the people of Ephesus as they oppress all humans. And he centers these first three chapters around the all-surpassing power of God, its specific manifestation in the work and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the way that the Spirit puts us in touch with that amazing power, and that this is our inheritance. And it's beautiful, and it's powerful, and for those practical people out there who like to get our hands dirty, it's kind of like, okay, so what? <laughs> well, today, Paul shifts. He shifts from this big picture of what God did for us and who he is to the rest of his letter is really the therefore do this. I know this is what some of you all get up on Sundays for. This is the good stuff, right? I get it. I actually think that's a bad tendency that we have. I tend to push pretty hard against the performative things that we bring to our faith because I think that's a tendency that moves us away from the idea of grace. But there are implications to grace. Following Jesus undeniably means that we walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling, as Paul calls us to here. What he is calling us to and what he will outline for the vast majority of the second half of this letter, this walk. But even as we turn to this more applicable teaching, we have to see some really, really important things. And I think without these things, we tend to kind of pervert the what it looks like to walk with Christ. First, it's a therefore that Paul starts this section with. Yes, Paul is finally telling us what it looks like to live well. But all of that is based on all that he's already said. Which means how we live is because and flows out of God's power, Christ's work, how the Spirit empowers us that we walk worthy of the calling that we have because we are called and because we're empowered by grace to do so. None of it is fleshly righteousness. None of it is performative or an evaluative requirement. It is a therefore. Second, Paul doesn't command us. He urges us. And this word urge is, 
its importance. And actually, it connects to another letter. Over time, you'll learn this is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. It connects to a word that he uses in Philemon. And what he says to Philemon is, although I have the confidence to command you, rather I appeal to you. This is the same word here as he uses in Philemon, in contrast to a command, in contrast to a law that he's setting forwards. Paul's not reviving the old legal requirements that Jesus came and fulfilled. Nor is he setting up some new law in Christ. He is calling us towards the natural implications of our new life in Jesus Christ. The third thing that we have to remember is that Paul starts in a very important place in this section. And it has frustrating implications for what it looks like for me to live well in the way that I want to. Paul's going to give us multiple chapters of descriptions of what walking worthily looks like. But he starts right here And because he starts here, this passage serves as a hinge between all the great things God has done for us and how we walk in that. And what that means is that everything that we're going to interact with for the rest of this series is actually grounded in this right here. In this call to humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering And really, it's a call to unity. He starts here because it's important. He says, if you want to be righteous, if you want to walk in a worthy manner, if you want to be a good Christian, whatever that means, there are no A, B, A team and B team Christians. But if that's what you're striving for, it all starts with unity and the characteristics that promote it. It starts by being unified and connected and an integral part of one another in this thing that we call the church. And of course, in our Western mindset, we don't really like that. We've created a picture in our heads of what walking with Jesus looks like, and it doesn't involve other people. We see ourselves walking this path like Green Day. I walk a lonely road, the only one I've ever known. I don't know where it goes, but it's only me, and I walk alone. Paul is placing unity at the start of this path, at the very beginning. Which means we have to let go of the lie that we walk it alone. We have no choice. The worthy path is not a lonely path. In fact, Paul argues, actually, I think that to do so is not just to take the wrong path, but to corrupt what God has called us to. He doesn't call us to develop unity in the Spirit. He calls us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
This unity that is already in existence, that is the starting point, as if we come into this walk with Jesus together. And this kind of going it alone attitude disassembles something that Jesus put together in his work. And that's exactly what he wants us to see. Unity is an essential part of this new life that he has called us to. It's not the last time he's going to talk about this, by the way. But we've already been told this, right? We have been made fellow citizens, chapter 2, verse 19. Members of the, saint, of the household of God, 2.20. And a holy temple in the Lord, 2.21. We are told that we are one body together. But here he hits it very emphatically. Actually, using the word one, and in Greek he uses it in every single one of its variations. He says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This is what it means to be resurrected and reconciled and reformed in Jesus Christ. It means being connected to a church that is deeply connected. Sharing the practice and experience of this new life together, one hope, one faith, one baptism. Existing together as one body, a body that is connected to, created by, and sources its life and power in one spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are on a journey together. A new path, one that we are to walk in a worthy manner, worthy of the power of the Trinity that is in us, that power with which God holds us together. That power that God uses to shake off the oppression of the world and the devil and the flesh. And we're called to do that together. Because we have been made one by Jesus Christ. You two wrote their song, One. The song on the outside is about a relationship on the verge of breaking up. But they wrote it at a particularly difficult time in the band's relationship. It was fragile, and they thought it, the band was probably over. And they kind of wrote it as a group counseling session. In the resolution of the song, they say, we are one, but not the same. We get to carry each other. Next week, we're going to talk about that we are one, but not the same. That's what the next passage points towards. But it's so important that we know that this is who we are. We are one, and we were made to carry each other along this road, along this worthy path. But we're really bad at that, right? 
First of all, we're bad at walking the path. I don't walk in a worthy manner very often. Honestly. It's just hard. We have to own it. Because as much as you might want to deny it and hide it, I see you. And as much as I might want to hide it and deny it, you see me. And as much as we, corporately, as a church, might want to hide it and deny it, our neighbors see us. Most days, I don't feel like the power of the Trinity is alive in myself or in the church or in even our greatest individuals. In fact, it feels like the ones who are really in power are that original oppressive power. The world, the devil, and the flesh. They're running the show, and it can be very discouraging. Paul addresses it pretty honestly here. Sorry, I'm trying to find it. Like, is this in this section or the next section? It's in the next section. Verse 14, if you look ahead. Paul says that we're children tossed to and fro. What Paul actually calls us our infants. And babies, I don't know how long it's been since you've had a baby. Could ask Lars and Delilah about this one. They are very much alive, just like everyone else. But they don't walk well. They struggle with everything. Paul wants us to grow up. And I'm going to read a part of this next section because I think it's important. Sometimes when you do two sermons, you break up the text, and then you're like, maybe I shouldn't have broken up the text. Here's what he says. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high and led a host of captives, and gave, he gave gifts to men. That's going to be important next week. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave us apostles and prophets the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the picture of the growth that he's calling us to. He wants us to 
to attain the unity of the faith, verse 13. It means he wants us to be victorious in unity against the enmity of the world, that power that wants to divide. He wants us to to attain the knowledge of the Son of God. Victorious and the knowledge of his authority over the devil. He wants us to attain mature manhood, victorious in the strength of our new life over the power of the flesh. But babies, that's what he calls us. I mean, unity and knowledge and strength aren't what they're known for, right? As cute as they are, Babies are selfish and undiscerning and unstable. That's who we are, right? Jesus died so that we can be reborn. And you have that just by naming him as your Savior and your Lord. There's nothing more that you do. When you know Jesus Christ, you have new life. You are reborn. But if you want to be anything more than a spiritual infant... There's growing that we all need to do, right? So there should be no surprises that we struggle to walk this worthy worthy road. Just as there should be no surprises that if we put our infant children down and told them to go, it may not turn out. And there are implications for this. I think there's two implications that we really have to hear as a church. First, it would be foolish, just foolish, to be surprised or offended by one another's immaturity. Okay? We're reborn, but we're infants. And if your brothers and sisters are infants, when they're not getting things right, of course, we're all babies. Keller says we're a church full of dirty diapers. But the second implication is that even though we're all babies and we shouldn't be surprised by one another, even our own foibles, (laughs) we never should be content sitting in our own filth. I need to grow up. You need to grow up. And that's very hard like, it's really hard. And it's even harder when we're by ourselves because we can't do it. There's another song about loneliness. Another song about loneliness. Uh, it's from Linkin Park, if you know them. It's a really tragic song, actually. It was the last recording um, that, that Bennington, their lead singer, did before he took his life. And in it, he cries out. He says, Why is everything so heavy? Holding on to so much more than I can carry, I keep dragging around what's bringing me down. That transition from an immature infant, (laughs) alive but still sitting in the filth that the world and the devil and the flesh have put us in, 
that transition to mature adulthood from there, confident in the power of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is so hard. It's too hard. I can't do that. I can't carry that. And yes, the ultimate answer to that struggle is the gospel, that I'm not the one who carries it, that Jesus Christ has come, has experienced it, has died carrying it to the cross, and he carries it for me. Of course, that is what we believe. But the way that he does so is actually much more practical than it is metaphorical. He does so by resurrecting me into a new body where I am not alone. And this is how he designed it to be. Meaning that if I want to be carried by Jesus apart from the church that he has put me in, I'm going to be really disappointed. Because that's not what he's designed. And the risk of shattering anyone's own view of their own life. This is how you have to grow in Christ. And if you've been growing in Christ in a different place, you are probably not growing in Christ. You're probably growing in the flesh and in the self-righteousness that it wants to delude you in. If you are pulling yourself up, If you are walking that road well alone, just you and Jesus, you're probably not on the right road. Because there is no picture in Scripture that this is an option that God gives us. There's nowhere where he says, all right, door number two, though, is you and me just kind of trudging it out on our own. He resurrected you into a body. This is his purpose. This is what he has planned. This is what he has designed. And if you are going to grow you are going to grow together. And that's why the first step down this road that Paul gives us is unity. Because it is so important that we admit how heavy this life is, how hard it is to even take one step and then to submit ourselves to God's plan for this journey, which is the church, together. I can't walk this road alone. I need you. And you need me. As good old Bill Withers says, lean on me when you aren't strong, and I'll be your friend, I'll help you carry on, for it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on. That's, That's like, There's gospel truth in that. The first step is finding unity in the church. That's what's needed to do everything else that he's going to tell us. And that is a very difficult step, particularly for us individual, you know, stoically riding off into the sunset Westerners. Like, even if I'm okay with you leaning on me, and let's be honest, ultimately I buckle pretty easily to the strain. I'm pretty unwilling to admit that I need you. That's hard for us. But we have to take that step. 
because we have to live life together or we will die alone. Paul's explicit about this. First of all, those exhortations that he gives us in verse 2, humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, you can't do any of those on your own. Right? The first implications Paul gives us for what God has done in our life are things you literally need another person to practice. Patience is not a problem when I'm on the road by myself. Gentleness is not a problem. Humility, bearing with one another. But those are the first implications he gives us. Second, Paul tells us that we, plural, are one, singular, in the things that we share, and he does it seven times. And third, in that section that I read, that second section of this passage, Paul talks about how the church is gifted and guided through this together. And even that growth is one that grows into unity. Children, plural, are growing into mature manhood, singular. And Paul uses this, this, this last sentence in that second passage. It's kind of a long one. I should have included it. It's 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which he is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is a weird clause. What we actually have is, is a central clause at the beginning and the end of it, broken up by a pretty big dependent clause. That's important because the central clause is the main theme. The dependent clause is the kind of how and what and what's going on. And we're going to talk about the dependent clause next week in detail. But if you just take the main clause, this is what it says. We are to grow up in every way into him who is Christ, the whole, in him, sorry, into him who is the head, into Christ, the whole body. So growing up in Christ, the whole body, break, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Who grows the body? Well, Yes, Jesus grows the body, but that's not what Paul highlights here. Jesus grows the body, but he does it in a particular way. He grows the body through the body. The whole body makes the body grow. This is a major part of what Jesus designed the church for. It is the mechanism that he has established for your growth. This is the way that you are called to learn about, grow into, and be empowered by that power of God that we read about in the first three chapters. Through the body of Christ. You cannot 
grow to spiritual maturity alone. Full stop. That's not a biblical concept. It's an American concept, but it is not a biblical concept. We only grow when we grow together. Selfish infants into unified grown-ups. Foolish children into knowledgeable and discerning adults. Weak and unstable babies into stable men and women in Christ. And when you try to grow on your own, you stunt your growth. You won't see progress. Implications? You won't see progress if you're a drop-in member at a church. You won't see progress if you're sitting alone in your study, doing all of that in your quiet time with God. And I hate to say it because it seems so harsh, but when you do this, not only do you stunt your growth, but you stunt my growth. Because I need you. Because we need you. We have been resurrected into the body together. And this body functions best and grows best and works best and proclaims the kingdom of God best when its members know they're connected to the body. You have to be a living and breathing part of this body. Which means we have to give up on this individualistic idol that we have deeply rooted in our culture. And honestly, kind of deeply rooted in the parts of our culture that we tend to really like as the church. You gotta knock John Wayne off the horse. A real man or woman is not the stoic cowboy who rides off alone into the distance. That's, biblically speaking, that's not a man. That's a child. That is a child. It's an overgrown infant, stunted in his growth, sitting in his dirty diaper, unable to become the man that Jesus has called him to be. So you need to climb off your horse and live. And that's hard. Those walls that we've built are very sturdy walls. We need someone to tear them down for us. And that's exactly what Jesus does. One of my favorite bands, a couple of you who have my 1020 list, didn't make the list, the song didn't, but one of my favorite Cage the Elephant songs says this. It's pretty simple. You can build your walls. Love will tear it down. Love is what this new church is built up in. If you notice that at the end. That's how this verse ends. And if you understand humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering, maybe if you know your Bible trivia, you're thinking, aren't those in 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul talks about love? you know that this passage also begins in love. It begins and it ends in love. 
Like, I can't let down my walls for you, but because I have been loved by Jesus, even while my walls were up, and he has called me into this kingdom, those walls can fall down. And that is what the church is. It is a kingdom without walls. This is actually how Zechariah describes the kingdom of God when it comes. It's a kingdom without walls. Or it is God himself who functions as the walls. God himself who holds the kingdom together. And God is love. And this is who we are. Brothers and sisters, we can't do this alone. And it is very hard to be together. But Jesus Christ has made you new and has resurrected you into this body so that we can be built up, so that we can grow, so we can walk this path through the love of Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry. I'm so invested in in walking on my own. (laughs) I'm so invested in, in living this life where I'm safe from my neighbors and I'm allowed to be because I've I've let you in and we're walking together. But God, that is not what you've called me to. I pray that you would teach me how to be one with your body. And I pray that for each of us here this morning. That through the unity of your Holy Spirit, we would understand what you have called us to. We would love one another well. And we would grow. Pray this for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. In the name of your Son. Amen.